Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders about the strategies they use to persist and succeed in business. I am your host, RJ Lumba, Managing Partner of Growth Cap LLC. In this episode, we chat with Bo Burlingham, the author of the acclaimed best-selling book, Small Giants. In the book, Bo provides a detailed account of 14 companies that chose to become great instead of big. We start the conversation off with Bo describing what company Mojo is. Thanks for tuning in and hope you enjoy the show. Mojo, which is sort of like charisma. You know, it's the sort of the business version of charisma. When a leader has charisma, you want to follow him or her. When a business has mojo, you want to be associated with that business. You want to buy from it, sell to it, work for it, wear its t-shirts and caps and so forth. And uh, you know that those were the those were those were the criteria that I was using to select the companies. Now I will say that the thing that fascinated me most was this question of mojo: where did it come from? How had they been able to hold on to it? I mean, I'd known. Not, Lots of companies or a number of companies, well-known companies in the early 1980s when I first went to Inc. that had had that mojo quality. A lot of them are household names now, like, you know, Bill Gates at Microsoft and um, uh, Steve Jobs at Apple and, um, you know, a whole lot of companies, you know, Yvonne Chouinard at Patagonia, Tom Stenberg at Staples, uh, Ben Cohn and Jerry Greenfield at Ben and Jerry's. Um, they all, all these companies, um, had this sort of magical quality uh, at the time. And uh, you know, it wasn't just that they were successful. There was something else that sort of made them extremely attractive. And but most of those companies had, uh, and I was lucky because I. I got to know them when both the companies and their founders were uh, pretty young, and I could watch what happened to them over the years. Fact is that most of them lost their mojo um, at some point, and um, these companies that I was looking at, the small giants, um, they'd held on to it, and I wanted to know why or how they'd done that, and so I. Uh, looked at the qualities that they had in common. And I came up with, well, ultimately I came up with with six. Initially I came up with five, but (laughs) I realized that I'd I'd missed one in the first edition of the book. And um, what qualifies uh, a company uh, as a small giant? Maybe if you could just, you know, talk through some of the uh, common characteristics of these companies. Yeah, well, um, I I had certain criteria that I used to choose them, uh, one of which was that I wanted companies who had had the opportunity, like Zingerman's, had had the opportunity to get a lot bigger a lot faster, but it decided that they weren't going to focus on that because they had other goals they considered more important. Uh, number two, I wanted companies that were considered the best at what they did. In other words, people who really knew the industry, including their competitors, viewed them as one of the top companies in the in the business. Um, and number three, I wanted companies that had made a 
had a positive impact outside their industry and had been recognized by independent third parties for the contributions they had made to their communities or to the world as a whole or whatever. Uh, number four, I wanted companies that had been profitable um, for uh, at least 15 or 20 years. Um, you know, number five, I had to deal with the size question, so I, I came up with the idea of human size, and by that I mean a company that is has not grown beyond the point where um, people don't know each other anymore. In other words, the people I wanted companies where the people at the top still had contact with the entry-level people and vice versa. The entry-level people still had felt they had access to people at the top. And then finally, I wanted companies that had that quality that I called mojo. That's, help, that's helpful. And I noticed there's two uh, software companies, uh, at least on the most recent list that you have up at Forbes that are... Um, you know, part of the list. So you've got FreshBooks and and Basecamp. Um, yes. And uh, you know, like as mentioned, uh, there's there's a good number of uh, CEOs in our audience that are software CEOs or or SaaS CEOs. Um, right. You know, or you know, would we'll be curious as, as to uh, to understand what they're what you saw in in those companies that made them unique. Well, if you if you look closely at those companies, they're they're both very very successful software companies, but they're sort of unusual software companies in that um, in their first in their early going at any rate. I mean, Basecamp I don't think has ever taken outside equity, and uh, um, FreshBooks resisted taking out until you know a couple of years ago when it took some because it had a a growth goal, um, and you know the thing that the, 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 they're 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 different from the sort of the standard model uh, in Silicon Valley for sure, where basically everybody is focused on getting the money from venture capitalists or private equity firms. And uh, one thing that goes along with that is, um, you know, you you basically when you uh, bring in a venture capital firm or a private equity firm, you're making a decision that someday in the not-too-distant future, you're going to sell it. I want to uh, derail too much towards the uh, in- investor conversation. I know it's certainly related to kind of how the company is able to evolve over time, but w- one of the things that um, you know I wanted to have our audience learn more about was how how these you know companies are able to create that environment you know kind of is, is there kind of one key common characteristic and you know i guess we define it as mojo but you know you know how how are these companies able to get the best out of their people well um there are a number of different things uh i mean i they they among other things that what they do is that they most of them once they get above a certain size, almost all of them, you know, they have the attitude that they put their employees first. Um, their customers are a close second. But, you know, when you think about it, it's not that um, shocking because, um, you know, who once a company gets above a certain size, who has the contacts? 
with the customers. It's generally not the people at the top of the organization. It's the people who work for the organization. And if you want them to take care of your customers uh, the way that you would, you better create an, uh, a culture where people feel that kind of ownership of the company and that kind of identity of the company. And there, there are different factors that, that sort of go into that. I think one of them is uh, having a higher purpose for, for the company. Um, you know, I, since most of these companies are private, um, the idea of uh, it, or fri- private and tightly held, um, you know, the idea of working hard to make somebody else rich, you need to have something. There's got to be some reason why people look at what they're doing and they say, this is actually important. Um, mm-hmm. and And here's... Here's why this matters. Here's what, why what I'm doing matters. And sort of the secret is to, it gets harder and harder as a company grows, is to sort of create that within the, within the business. You know, they, most of these companies, well, all these companies actually, first place, they're run by people. They tend to be run by people who have a very clear idea in their own minds about who they are, what they want, and why. Because often they're faced with uh, choices that, you know, if you you don't know who you are, what you want, and why, you tend to do what other people think you should do. And that makes it very hard when the tough choices come up to do something that in the end you're going to be happy with. Um, the second thing is that these are all companies that had a real close connection to their communities, to the communities where they do business. I mean, to the point where it's hard to imagine them being in another community. I mean, one example of that that I write about in the book was Anchor Steam Beer, which, um, you know, it's a, it, it was and still is, frankly, a San Francisco institution. It's no longer a small giant because it was bought by Sapporo, but it had, um, you know, it, it 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 was when when I wrote about it as a small giant, that feeling of being part of of San Francisco and being a San Francisco institution was really baked into the into the company, and uh, you know you can have great breweries. Uh, in other places, and there are great breweries in other places, but but Anchor Anchor Brewing was part of San Francisco, and and, and it, it it you know it it was started during the gold rush, and it had been through all of the fires and earthquakes and everything like that, and managed to survive, and it was it was sort of a piece of San Francisco history. Um, and that's actually been recognized by the city. Quite a uh, a feat to have kind of all of those characteristics rolled up into one. And, and I assume, you know, you probably saw some pretty impressive, uh, you know, CEOs and, and leaders of companies. Um, is, is there, you know, any one kind of particular leader that really stood out to you and, and you know, that 
you know, maybe had to persist through some really trying times or, you know, simply that just did things, you know, showed a lot of char- that, that that showed a lot of character through the evolution well, there, of the there were, as you can imagine, uh, as you said, as you noted, uh, uh, actually quite a number of them. Um, you know, um, Danny Meyer, of the, the uh, founder of the Union Square Hospitality Group in New York, you know, which was basically restaurants, uh, he founded his first two restaurants were Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern in New York, and They've been like the number one and two most popular restaurants in New York, according to Zagat, for about 15, 20 years, something like that. He also uh, founded uh, Shake Shack, uh, which he then spun off as a public company uh, because he wanted Union Square Hospitality Group to remain a small giant. Um, You know, there was uh, somebody I actually wrote a book with, Norm Brodsky, who had a record storage company, uh, which was a great company. He ultimately sold it for about $110 million. And, uh, but he went through very trying times because, you know, in the 19, um, in the 1970s and eighties, he, uh, really was very focused on getting his company as big as possible, as fast as possible. And it led him to make some, eventually led him to make some serious mistakes. And he wound up in Chapter 11. He went through a very, very difficult time. But he came out of it and he learned his lesson. Um, And I tell the story of sort of what happened there. Um, You know, there's another... um, there, there. I would say all of these people. I, I could, I could talk about probably all of, all of the people who, um, you know, were the key people in these companies because I have such admiration for them and understand they were doing this at a time when there was no support for what they were doing, where basically everybody would be telling them you've got such a great opportunity here to grow. Why aren't you doing it? Um, and they would resist that and because they knew what they wanted to do and it wasn't what other people wanted them to do. And to have that clarity about yourself and about what you want, I mean, a great example is Gary Erickson, who uh, is, was the founder of Cliff Bar, um he uh his he he got in the late uh 1990s his two biggest competitors craft uh were bought by Kraft and Nestle Power Bar and Balance Bar and uh he got an offer from Quaker for 120 million dollars he had one partner and uh that's a lot of money which would have would have gone to him and uh, he th- he came very close to doing the deal, but at the last minute, he, he decided, you know, I don't feel right to do this. And he decided to call it off uh, and basically walked away from, you know, a, at least a $60 million payday for himself 
And, you know, after that, uh, he, he unfortunately, his partner was not of the same frame of mind, and he wound up having to pay her uh, the $60 million uh, plus additional money, non-competes and things like that for non-competes. And, uh, you know, everybody, literally everybody was telling him he was absolutely out of his mind that, um, you know, here he was up against these sort of billion-dollar competitors that could control shelf space and, uh, you know, crush him. Uh, And at the same time, uh, he saddled himself with this huge amount of debt. And yet, over the course of the next three years, the company tripled in size. He paid off the debt. And, uh, you know, in the, since, I, since I first wrote about them in uh, 2005, 2006, um, you know, they've grown, I don't know, 10 or 15 times. You know, he thought when he was turning down this money, he said, well, that's probably the last chance I'll ever uh, have to make that much money, but I just... I'm not. It's not worth it, and uh, yet, in fact, uh, his stock is probably worth uh, a lot more than that today. Um, so you know, you know, I look at all these people, and I, I I have the greatest admiration for them because they have been through hard times and they have made very painful choices a lot of times and or difficult choices, and. Uh, uh, and 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 they've come back. You know, the the result has been that they've created these companies that sort of, by any measure, are great companies. Uh, they're great in terms of how they treat their employees. They're great in terms of their relationships with their customers and suppliers. They're great in terms of their what 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 they've done for their communities and for society in general. Um, and uh, and and they're successful businesses, so um, you know. I, I think that uh, that that uh, that's a good place to actually cap this off. I think they've you know proven and and you've you know shown a light on this segment of companies that have you know really done amazing things in their own right and, and haven't followed the the traditional path. So you know, really, the purpose of you know, our conversation here, and, and again, really appreciate you taking the time, was to, to highlight, um, you know, that, that you can, you know, as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, um, you know, you can really think deeply about what it is you want to accomplish uh, with your company and, and steer yourself in that direction. Um, and, and uh, you know, sometimes it's difficult because people are trying to coach you to, to go a different way, you know, maybe grow you know, in an accelerated fashion, um, and ultimately, you know, the, the, the path that one takes has to feel right uh, with that person. So, um, you know, I think your, your work is, is fantastic. Um, you know, there, there's a lot to be said about, you know, companies that create these amazing environments for their employees and, and their partners and their customers. Um, you know, that goes beyond kind of the, the standard metrics people use to measure uh, business success. 